We started a series a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago, on our authority in Christ, and we're using as a text scripture Luke chapter 10 and verse 19. Jesus sent the 70 and instructed them to go and preach the gospel, to heal the sick, raise the dead, and so forth. One thing he did not tell them to do is cast out devils. Now, why that is, we don't know. I, I can't imagine that that was an oversight on his part. But we have to remember also that these 70 were with Jesus all the time. When it came time to pick the 70, he didn't have to go searching for people. So he's already chosen the 12 prior to this point in time. And then he sends 70 also. Most Bible scholars agree that there were anywhere from 100 to 150 people that followed Jesus and stayed with him all the time. People that he was responsible for their care. And as such, Jesus chooses 70 and gives them instruction. They've seen him cast out devils. They've seen the disciples, the 12 cast out devils. So perhaps they understood that that was part of the package. We don't know. What we do know is the Bible says in, uh, in Luke chapter 10 that the 70 returned, verse 17, the 70 returned again with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. So they found out that the, that the power of the name of Jesus went further than he specifically identified in their case. So Jesus answered and says unto them, in verse 18, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power. Now in the, the 19th verse, you'll notice that in the King James, the word power is listed twice. There are two different words in the Greek. The first word that's identified power is, it means delegated power or authority. The second word that's translated power means ability. So he says, behold, I give you power, literally authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power, ability of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now stop and think about what Jesus is responding to their statement. They're saying, we found out we can command the devil to leave. Jesus said, your authority over his power will enable you to walk in such a way that nothing shall by any means hurt you. They're saying we can send him away. Jesus says nothing will hurt you. Now, this is Palm Sunday, as everybody knows, and so we want to identify and, and uh, work that into our, our series, and it fits perfectly, frankly. I would like for you, if you will, to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 21. Here's the story of Palm Sunday when Jesus comes into the the city of Jerusalem, in the last week that he was here on the earth. And I don't know how you read the Bible. It's, it's real easy to read it like it's a storybook. And as such, you may not be conscious of when certain things are taking place in Jesus' three years of ministry. But Matthew chapter 21 tells us about... Uh, uh, Matthew really gives us a good chronology. It's not, uh, it's not exact. John gives us some information that kind of mixes up some, some different things. Matthew's account was, uh, Matthew was one of the twelve, so was John. John wrote his account much, much, much later than, uh, than Matthew did. So Matthew is the earliest recollection, eyewitness recollection of the things that happened in Jesus' ministry. John is the later one, and John seems to add in things that the other writers don't put in. John gives us some, uh, some personal and some specific information. In some ways, he fills in some blanks for us where the other gospel writers didn't add to us. Now, Matthew is an eyewitness. He was part of the 12. Mark and Luke were not part of the 12, so they're giving us information at very best secondhand, maybe thirdhand. John, however, comes in after the fact, many, many, many years after the fact, and kind of fills in the blanks. He knows the Gospels, the other three Gospels are out there, and so he seems to be writing specifically and deliberately to give us information that the others don't tell us. Matthew, however, tells us about the, the entry into Jerusalem Beginning in verse 1, it says, And when they, were drew, when they drew nigh into Jerusalem, they were come to Bethphage, under the Mount of Olives, and, sent, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught out unto you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell you the daughter of Zion, behold, the king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them, on them their clothes, 
and set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet, the, Na- uh, the prophet of Nazareth and of Galilee. Now Luke's account, Luke chapter 19, Luke adds in there that the Pharisees came to Jesus while the people were shouting. Um, the multitudes were singing hosannas and so forth and told Jesus to command everybody to stop saying that. They know that, he, that the people, whether they intend it or not, whether it's just something that happens by the move of the Holy Ghost or whether they're convinced that he is the Messiah, what they're saying about Jesus is they're declaring him the Messiah. Folks, that's the significance of Palm Sunday. It's where the people said, this is the Christ. They accept him as their Savior. Now, to what extent they knew what they were doing, to what, uh, to what degree uh, you know, they, they, were, they were convinced, I don't know. These things were done that, that fulfilled prophecy. It may have been the, the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. For example, Peter, at one place, Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? And Peter said, You're the Christ. Jesus responds and says, flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you were just inspired by the Holy Ghost to say that I'm the Messiah. But that didn't mean Peter was fully convinced from that point forward. He goes on just the next few verses. Jesus tells about how he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified and raised again the third day. And Peter says, no, Jesus, it's not going to be like that. Peter says something that so many of us have said ourselves. He says, not so, Lord. Folks, you can't say that. If he's Lord, it's yes. If it's not so, he's not Lord. You can't say no, Lord. You can say no, Jesus. Or you can say yes, Lord. But you can't say no, Lord. Because if he's Lord, it's always yes. That's what makes him Lord. Furthermore, after Jesus is crucified, Peter goes fishing. He says, I've had enough of this. He's gone. Everything's upside down. The end of the world has come, so I'm going back to fishing. So him being inspired to call Jesus the Christ didn't mean he was on board forever. You see the point? So to whatever degree the people of Jerusalem are on board with calling him the Messiah and singing hosannas, which is only reserved for the Messiah, I don't know. But they're doing it to fulfill prophecy. When the Pharisees come and tell Jesus, don't tell your disciples to stop this, they couldn't care less about anything except themselves. If Jesus is the Christ, that means they're lower on the totem pole. That means they're not the ones that people come to anymore. They're not the ones that have the final word. And so they say, Jesus, stop your disciples from saying this. And you know the the verse very well. Luke 19, I think it's verse 49, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if they be quiet, then the rocks themselves shall cry out. So this is certainly the fulfillment of prophecy. It's certainly important and necessary in the plan and the purpose of God. Now, why is it necessary? It's necessary because all of Jerusalem was filled with the knowledge that the people are claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. So they go on one day from calling Jesus the Messiah Five days later, they're going to call for him to be crucified. In other words, it's important for the people to know what they're doing because they play a part in this. Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' death, and his sacrifice is going to be on behalf of the people, so they need to know. They need to know at least that everybody else is saying that he's the Messiah. Maybe some heard others singing that, so they said, well, okay, I, I better join in too. That's the way it works a lot of times with people. You get a lot of people singing in church, not so much outside church. Oh, yeah, we'll do it when inside the church where everybody else is singing. We don't want to stand out and make it look like we're not singing. But you let them get outside the church when they're by themselves. You don't hear too much singing about the praises of God. So I don't know. You decide for yourself. First thing Matthew tells us that Jesus does, verse 12, it says, And Jesus went into the temple and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves first thing jesus did when he went into jerusalem as proclaimed to be the messiah is he ran people out of church (laughs) 
Well, there's a lot of things you could say right there. Modern day church trying to get everybody in. Jesus ran the wrong people out. My mic cut out there. I need to say that again. The modern day church is trying to get everybody in. Jesus ran the wrong people out. You know, it's not just about the crowd. So many times we look at things and we judge things from the flesh. And we say, oh, they've got a big crowd over there. There must be something happening there. Well, there may be something happening, but that doesn't mean it's God. God's interested in the individual. God's not impressed with the crowds. We shouldn't be either. Now, don't get me wrong. I want a crowd. But I want the crowd to be the ones after Jesus has run the wrong people out. That's the crowd I'm looking for. So it says, Jesus ran the money changers out of the temple saying, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it the den of thieves. Now, here's the part. Everybody knows the story about Jesus running the money changers out of the temple. How many people know the next verse? How many people know the next verse is part of the story? And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I wonder if those two things are connected. I wonder if the healing power of God is connected to getting the wrong people out. It's a Bible principle. You can find that there were places in, in Jesus' ministry, towns that he cursed, that he wouldn't heal anybody there. The Bible talks about one blind man at Bethsaida. He's already cursed the city of Bethsaida, saying if, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the signs and wonders you've seen, they would have repented. And so he comes to that town a later time in his ministry, and there's a blind guy there. Jesus takes him outside the city limits before he ministers to him. He won't do it while he's in the town. So it is a scriptural principle. There are things God won't do around the wrong people. So the blind and the lame came to Jesus and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. This word sore displeased literally means they were indignant. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees are supposed to be the ones that are looking out for the little guy. The one that cares about the common man. But when things start happening contrary to the way that they set it up, man, they don't like that at all. Folks, that's the way religion is. Religion has its own little set of rules. It's got its own little outline. It's got its own little system. And you operate outside of that system. God himself operating outside of that system is then not welcome. That's why you've got so many people in the body of Christ that fight against healing. Oh, yeah, they'll say, well, God can heal. We know all things are possible with God. He can do anything. But those folks that preach healing is for everybody. That's just not right. Show me anywhere in the Bible. Show me anybody in the New Testament that preached the healing was for some. Show me anybody that follows that pattern, that doctrine in the New Testament. You can't find any. And so you have to come up with an excuse for that. You have to say, well, things are different now. Okay, God never changes. The Holy Ghost never changes. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But things are different now. If God was doing the works, it can't be different. Now, if the guys, the people themselves were doing the works, okay, I could accept that, then things are different. But if God's the one behind the works... It can't ever change. Okay. Verse 16. And they said unto him, here, this is when they asked Jesus about what the people are saying. Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus read unto them, yea, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings? Hast thou perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. Now in the morning as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw the fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only and said unto it, let no man 
eat, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree was withered away. We talk a lot about that, mostly from Mark chapter 11, because it gives us more details and insight, specifics about what Jesus did and how he did it. But I want you to understand, folks, that he did this, this great work, this great explanation of faith, great demonstration of faith was done the last week of Jesus' life. If we go through, and we won't take time to do it this morning, but if we go through and we just go through the chronology of each and every day that Jesus spent until his crucifixion, from the time that he entered on Palm Sunday through his crucifixion, you'll find out that some of the greatest miracles and greatest things that he said were done in the last week of his life. Jesus went out with a bang. What do you think God would expect the church to go out with before Jesus comes to get us? Verse 23, well, uh, let's read the rest of it. Let's just, uh, let's start back in verse 20 again with the fig tree. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how soon is the fig tree withered away? In other words, wow, Jesus, look how quick this happened. You said it yesterday, and now this morning has happened. And Jesus answered and said unto them, verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things, everybody say all things. Any way you can mistake that to some things? And all things, whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing. Here's the condition. A lot of people are asking for all things in prayer. Here's the condition. Believing, you shall receive. And when he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, I want you to notice one of the first things Matthew tells us about the questions that are raised against Jesus or, or to Jesus when he comes into the city in the last week of his life. Now, they don't know that it's the last week of his life. They haven't even planned at this point that they're going to take him and kill him. We don't even know for sure that Judas has gone to him and offered him up. But when Jesus comes in, the people are shouting that he's the Messiah. He throws the money changers out of the temple. He heals the sick that are there. He curses the fig tree. That was a private matter, not something that was done in public. Only the disciples and those that went with him back and forth to Bethany and from Jerusalem to Bethany and then back to Jerusalem the next morning. They're the only ones that know anything about this. So that's not a widespread or widely known type thing. But then the very thing that happens next when he goes into the temple, next day after he chases the money changers out and heals the sick, next thing that happens is they question his authority. They said, by what authority doest thou these things? Can't argue with them the, the fact that they're being done. By what authority do you do these things? What authority enabled you to, to throw the money changers out of the temple? What authority enabled you to heal the blind and the lame in the temple? What authority enabled you to do this? Folks, I want you to understand. Authority is the only thing that causes the world to step up and look. It's the only thing that causes them to perk up their ears and listen. I would submit to you that, the, that the, the church world as a whole, meaning religion as a whole, has done a masterful job of preaching the gospel in America. Doesn't mean everybody's been reached. I think that's self-explanatory. But the gospel has been preached in America. If not around the world, the gospel has been preached in America. Why then do people not care? Because it's been this mealy-mouthed, suffer for Jesus, come go with me and live a miserable life, and someday Jesus will come get us. It'll all be better in heaven. Man, that's attractive. That causes them to flood to the altar. There's only one thing that ever has caused people to sit up and take notice. The only thing that ever will cause people to sit up and take notice, and that's authority. If that were not true, Jesus wouldn't have needed to do the miracles. He could have just come and, pre and, and preached, or he could have come and taught them. You can't tell me that there's ever been a better preacher than Jesus. You can't tell me there's ever been a better teacher than Jesus. And the preaching and the teaching in and of itself was not enough, and that's why he did miracles, to show God was with him. In fact, the preaching and the teaching he did, the people, the, according to the Scriptures, the people sit up and take notice and say, wow, we've never heard a doctrine like this. He's teaching that man has authority. 
So Jesus' whole ministry was based on authority. His whole doctrine, his whole teaching was based on authority. Not just that he had authority. If he was teaching everywhere that he had authority, then he couldn't have delegated it to the disciples. They would, when he said, now you go and heal the sick and you go and cast out devils and you go and raise the dead, they would have said, wait a minute, Jesus, you've been preaching this to us for two and a half years. Or two years. You've been preaching all along. Well, actually, it was the second year. He did it all himself the first year, the second two years, his second and third year of ministry, he got the disciples involved. You've been preaching all along that you're the one with authority. How can we do this? You're the one with authority. That's not what he's been teaching. He's been teaching man has authority when he's in right standing with God. Now, folks, that's important because of the question that's being asked. They said, by whose authority do you do these things? They're not doubting that he has the authority. He's proven that. They're just saying, where does that come from? Where's that come from? Is that you and of yourself? Where does this come from? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing. If you will tell me, I will in likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, you answer my question first and then I'll answer yours. Then he asked him the question. Same accounts over in Mark chapter 12. Here's the question. The baptism of John. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it of men? And they reasoned within themselves, saying, if we shall say it's from heaven, he'll say unto us, why didn't you believe him then? Folks, I want you to understand, religion's got it all figured out. If we say God was behind John, then he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? See, if healing is from God, if, if, if Isaiah 53, 5 is right, where it says Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, if that belongs to everybody bore our sicknesses and bore our infirmities. If that's right for everybody, then, then if we say that that's, that's from God in every case, then, then there's perfect right to ask religious folks, then why don't you believe it? Which I do. Since the Bible says it and you say you believe the Bible, why don't you believe what it says? And so religion has to... Folks, please understand. Religion... Kind of like big fat Greek wedding around here. (laughs) Let me slow down and maybe I'm quit stumbling over myself. Religion is the master at excuses. If you're not seeing what the Bible says is yours, then you've got to make an excuse for why. And it can't ever be you. The problem can't ever be you. It's got to be God. It's got to be something on God's end. It's got to be something we don't understand. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. That's a big excuse for saying, I'm not willing to believe the Bible's true. Oh, that makes people mad. It's supposed to. That's exactly what religion is doing here. They don't want Jesus asking them that question. If we say it was from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? Well, what will our answer be to that? Uh, We didn't want to. We didn't like what he was saying. He was telling us we were going to have to change. We don't want to change. We don't want to lose our place with the people. We like it the way it is. So then they looked at it from the other side. Verse 26, but if we say it was from men... We're afraid of the people. For the people thought they was prophet. The people thought that it was from God. So if we say it was just of men, it wasn't of God, man, there's no telling what the people will do to us. They'll quit listening to us at the very least. Maybe stone us. So they said to Jesus, we can't tell. Here's religion's final fallback position. Well, I don't know. Doesn't matter. A lot of things about the Bible you don't know. A lot of things about God you'll never, never, never understand. (laughs) And Jesus kept his word. He said, you answer my question, I'll answer yours. Jesus kept his word and said, well, I won't tell you about what authority I do these things either then. Folks, the answer is in the question. The answer is in the question. The question is a legitimate one. Where did John's baptism come from? Who was behind what John did? Was it something that was just of man? 
or was God behind it? Well, what's the answer? It was the baptism of men inspired by God. In other words, it was part man and part God, which is exactly the way Jesus is doing this work that they're asking him about. He's a man anointed of God. John was a man anointed of God. That's the answer. And that's what he's trying to get across. And to anybody that recognizes the truth about John's baptism, it's easy to see. In other words, Jesus is saying man has the authority to do, to do these things when he's anointed of God. Which is what he's been teaching all along. His doctrine is that man has authority. Now, you know what's interesting about this? Turn with me over to John chapter 12, I think it is. John chapter 12. There's a lot of things I'd like to talk to you about the, about the last week of Jesus. He gets over in Matthew chapter 23, I think it is, and he says 12 woes to the scribes and Pharisees. I particularly like that scripture. But it's not relevant to our discussion this morning, so we'll leave that alone. Folks, I want you to understand, God loves people, but God hates religion. There's only one group of people that Jesus was really against, and that was the religious folks. Everybody else he accepted freely. Everybody else that received him, he received them. But, oh, he had a time with those religious folks. He pronounced curses upon them. He said, here's how it's going to be for you. Because when people choose religion instead of the truth, that puts you in a terrible, 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 terrible place. And I would submit to you that most of the modern-day church, the average modern-day Christian, is more religious than he is a believer in truth. And the same woes go to them. Folks, if I'm believing something that's not true, I don't care what my church doctrine is, I'm changing. I'm changing to whatever truth I find. Because the Bible is true. God's not going to judge me by church doctrine. God's going to judge me by what the Bible says. And the same is true for you. It's true for all of us. John chapter 12, uh, let's see, where do we want to do this? Um, it, it talks about, on the beginning of verse 12, it talks about Palm Sunday where he comes into the city. Uh, let's start in verse 20. It says that there were certain Greeks, and here again, John's filling in the blanks. Nobody else tells us about this event, this occurrence. It says that there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast, talking about in Jerusalem, and the same that came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew told Philip, Andrew and Philip together went to tell Jesus. And Jesus answered and said, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. And he's talking about his own death. He's saying, I can't bring forth much fruit unless I die. He's talking about his sacrifice. Okay, everybody understand? Now, why is he talking about much fruit when, when Philip and, and Andrew are saying, hey, there are Greeks that want to see you? Because he's talking about the world being brought in, not just for this one interview or one instance that these guys want to see Jesus. He's talking about the world being brought in as a result of his sacrifice. So he's, Philip and Andrew are coming and saying, well, I, we've got some Greek friends that want to meet you. Jesus is saying, I'm going to meet all the Gentiles of the world through my death. So do you see the imagery here that's going on? They're thinking, you know, I'm trying to big dog it with some of my friends, get an entrance for them with you. And Jesus is talking about his sacrifice and his crucifixion. Verse 25, he goes on, he says, He that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Do you understand what he means about keeping your life and losing it and, and all that kind of stuff? He's saying if you love this life, then you're going to die in spiritual death. Now, folks, realize and remember, that's exactly the position that the Pharisees have taken throughout Jesus' three years of ministry. Don't think that that's some unusual place. That's exactly where they've been. All of those eight woes in Matthew chapter 23 against the scribes and the Pharisees are all because of one thing, and that is they reject the truth of the word that he said. 
Every one of those woes, every one of those woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, is a, a result of rejecting the truth of this word and holding on to the way that things were for them instead. You know why people don't get saved? Because they think they're going to have to give up something that they want to keep. And Jesus is telling us very plainly, if you're not willing to give up what you think you want to keep, you can't have eternal life. You know why most of the church world is religious? Because they don't want to give up what they want to keep. And so what do they do? Even though they're saved, even though heaven is their home when this life is over, they're passing up on eternal life and the benefits of eternal life here now on the earth. Is this making any sense? So Jesus continues... He said, if any man serve me, the end of verse 26, if any man serve me, him will my father honor. This word honor means to prize, value, or revere, to hold is holy. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into this hour. In other words, I'm not going to say, Father, save me because of the trouble that's coming, because this is the whole reason that I came to the earth. So what am I going to say? Here's what he says instead. Father, glorify thy name. Now, when he said this, verse 28, John 12, verse 28, it said, there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. No other gospel writer tells us about this happening. Here's God speaking from heaven again. He spoke from heaven when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He spoke from heaven when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Hear him. In other words, shut up, Peter. Now he's doing it the third time at the end of his life. I have both glorified my name and will glorify it again. I wonder if that again applies to today. The people, therefore, that stood by, verse 29, and heard it, said that it thunders, and others said an angel spoke to him. Folks, here, you, we've talked about this before. Signs and wonders are things that make people wonder. That's why they call them wonders. It's very clear to John, who's telling us what happened, what the, what the situation was. But people that are not on board, people that are not spiritually attuned, people that are not conscious of what the Bible says and why it says it and how things work in the kingdom of God, they'll come up with all kinds of excuses. Some said, well, I guess that was thunder. Yeah, thunder talks to you, doesn't it? And other people say, well, I guess it was an angel. Why couldn't it have been God? It was his father answering what he said. I have glorified it, and I will glorify my name again. Then Jesus answered, verse 30. Here's what I really want to get to. Here's what I've been trying to get to throughout this whole thing. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not from because of me, but for your sakes. In other words, Jesus saying, I don't need a voice from heaven. Do you? I know a lot of people that want one. Do you need one? Jesus didn't. He said, I don't need a voice from heaven. Well, if he didn't need a voice from heaven, why? I mean, he's facing one of the greatest tests that that, that anybody could ever face. Why didn't he need a voice from heaven? Because he's sure of what God has told him. He knows that God has glorified his name and will glorify it again from what the Bible says. That should be enough for us too. So Jesus said, this voice didn't come for my sake, but for yours. And then he says, verse 31, here's what I want you to see. Now is the judgment of this world. Okay, I got a problem. You know how people say the Bible's full of contradictions? Here's one. Jesus has said earlier in his ministry, I didn't come to judge the world. Now he says, now is the judgment of the world. How are you going to reconcile that? you got two absolutely contradictory statements. How are you going to reconcile that? Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world. Now he says, now is the judgment of the world. Simple. The first time where he says, I didn't come to judge the world, he's talking about mankind. It's a different word. It's a different Greek word that's used in translated world here. This time where he says, now is the judgment of this world, this word means order or arrangement. He's talking about the world system. 
When he said, I didn't come to judge the world, he's saying, I didn't come to judge man. But I did come to judge the world system. And notice what he says about that world system. He said, now the prince of this world is cast out. Now, remember, the context of this is when he's saying, except a a kernel of wheat fall into the earth and die, it can't bring forth fruit. If I don't die, I can't bring forth fruit. If I don't die, the judgment of this world system can't come, and the prince of this world can't be cast out. But I want you to understand what the condition is now, because he did die. This world system has been judged. The prince of this world has been cast out. In other words, removed from power. Now, that's going to bring us back to some history here. How in the world did Satan become in charge of the world system? Well, we see in Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our own image. Verse 26, let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. So God made man to have dominion, right? Then he told man what to do with that dominion. He said, guard and keep the garden, dress and keep the garden. It literally means guard and protect it. Well, there's nothing to protect from if there's no enemy present. If the earth was not created in such a way that the enemy could come against Adam, then there's nothing to guard or protect it from, right? Right? Okay, so we know that the implication there by God's command to them and how to use their authority, the implication is there's an enemy out there. So you guard and protect the garden. You're going to need to be, hold your defenses up. You're going to need to be on alert, Because there is an enemy out there that's going to try to take something from you. He's going to try to overrun your kingdom and overrun your authority. So you guard and protect the kingdom. Everybody's on the same page here? When do we see Satan coming on the scene? He comes in to tempt Eve saying, did God really say you couldn't eat of that tree? Of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, Eve says we're not supposed to even touch that tree. She said, God told us in the day that we ate thereof that we'd surely die. God's talking about physical death. I'm, I'm, God's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. That's when Satan starts questioning God. He says, well, God knows you're not going to die. God knows that you're going to be like him. Well, that implies that God doesn't want you to be like him. Well, then why would God put a tree in the middle of the garden that would make you like him if he didn't want you to be like him? Folks, the devil is stupid if we'll just follow his line of reasoning. Long story short, she eats the apple or fruit, whatever it was. She disobeys the commandment of God. Adam follows her in. And the eyes of them both are opened. And they saw they were naked and ashamed. They saw they were naked and they were ashamed of it. In other words, the light of God's life on the inside of them went out. They died spiritually. Their spirits, the real them, the eternal part of them, was separated from God for the first time. And from that point forward, sin and death began to rule and reign over the earth. In other words, the world system changed. We know this from Romans chapter 12. The Bible says in verse, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5 in verse 12, the Bible says, for by one man, talking about Adam, by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So we know that everything changed with Adam. We know that Jesus was tempted of the devil during his earthly ministry. He was tempted of the devil. One of the temptations of the devil was that the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said, I'll give you the power of all of these kingdoms if you'll just fall down and worship me. Here's what the devil says. For that has been delivered unto me. In other words, the authority of the kingdoms of the world. He said, the authority of the kingdoms of the world has been delivered unto me. And I can give it to whoever I want to. That's pretty obvious that's taking place today folks now some people will say well the devil is just a lion he, he's a liar and therefore he was lying to jesus and, and jesus knew that it was lying so he just didn't respond well jesus did respond and his response was i will not fall down and worship you because god's the only one that i'm going to serve If Jesus knows that the devil is lying about having the authority, yet he responds to him, then he takes part in his lie. Jesus did not respond and say, you know you don't have that authority, devil. But he didn't. He said, I will not do what you say. I will serve only God. 
So what do we know? We put these things together. We know that Satan gained the authority of the world or the world system changed to make him the ruler of the world when Adam and Eve fell. That's why there's sin, sickness, and tragedy and despair in the world. So many times people, religious folks, will say, well, how could a loving God cause this? Folks, the loving God didn't put the tragedy in the world. The prince of this world, who Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls the God of this world. The God of this world put it here because he changed the system when he gained authority. But the point I want you to see is Jesus is saying that through his death, he has come to judge the world system and to cast the prince of this world out. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Please notice that this is not the authority that he gave the disciples in Luke chapter 10. Because the, ju- the, the world system hadn't been judged in Luke chapter 10. The prince of this world, meaning Satan, has not been cast down in Luke chapter 10. So when Jesus delivers his authority, the authority in his name to his 12 disciples, and they go about healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, and so forth. And when he delivers the authority to the 70 in Luke chapter 10, and they go out healing the sick, raising the dead, and find out that it even casts out devils, the power of the name of Jesus casts out devils too. That's not the authority that these must be talking about. It's not the system that happened or took place or was restored after Jesus' crucifixion. It was a lesser authority. Folks, I want you to understand, Jesus was operating in a lesser authority than he's delivered to you. I know, that's going to get me letters. I get it. I understand. I understand how blasphemous that sounds because Jesus was the Son of God. But I want you to understand, Jesus did not have, when he was here on the earth, what he has now. Ephesians, we'll start in chapter 1. It's talking about Paul's praying by the Holy Ghost that our eyes would be opened to know what belongs to us. One of the things he framed that we would know is what is the exceeding greatness of his power, verse 19, to usward or in usward, literally, who believe according to the working of his mighty power. In other words, he's saying the same power that works in you is the power that did this. Verse 20, the power that was wrought in Christ when God raised him from the dead and raised him at at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. It's saying the same power that works in you is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Folks, I want you to know this. Jesus did not cast out devils and heal the sick and raise the dead when he was here on the earth by that power. Paul is saying this is the greatest display of God's power ever in the history of the world. Which means it was not the same power that Jesus used when he was here on the earth. If this is the greatest display of his power, if this is the power that belongs to the church now, and Jesus was operating before the world system was judged, before the prince of the world was cast out, Jesus is an example and showing us an example of the power that was available to man under the old covenant who was righteous before God. He's showing us an example of the power that belonged to the Abrahamic covenant. But we don't have just an Abrahamic covenant now. We've got a covenant with the Son of the Lord Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That contains the blessings of Abraham's covenant, but it's even a higher level of power. We keep looking back at the Old Testament examples and we think, wow, Joshua stopped the sun and the moon. And Jesus is saying, you've got more than that. We look at Moses and say, wow. God rebukes Moses and says, quit praying to me. You divide the Red Sea. And Jesus says, I've given you more than that. Paul's saying the greatest display of God's power was, which was when he wrought it in Jesus to raise him, from the right, to raise him from the dead to the right hand of the Father, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. In other, other words, everything the devil has. Jesus did not operate here on the earth above all the power that the devil had. I know that sounds blasphemous. 
But Jesus said, after he was raised, he said to his disciples, Matthew 28, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. He didn't have all authority while he was here. Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears to John and says, I'm the one that was dead, but now I'm alive, and I'm alive forever, and I've got the keys of hell and death. Jesus didn't have the keys of hell and death when he was here on the earth. If Jesus had the keys of hell and death on the earth, Jesus would have changed the world system while he was here. The devil wouldn't have been able to tempt him saying, I've got all the authority of the kingdoms of the world, and I can do with it what I want to do. So this power that was, was, is resident in us who believe is the power that raised Jesus from the dead and set him at God's right hand far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Folks, I want you to understand, Jesus has given you authority over everything that has a name. Does cancer have a name? You've got authority over it. Does poverty have a name? You've got authority over it. Does foreclosure have a name? You have authority over it. Does depression have a name? You have authority over it. This is the power that works in you as a believer. Well, Pastor Mike, here's religion. Pastor Mike, if we've got that authority, then why do these things happen to good people, good Christians all over the world? Because you didn't read what the Bible says. It says, here's the power that's available to the, us who believe. Folks, that's got to mean a lot more than just make Jesus the Lord of your life. No, there's an active measure and operation of faith involved here. It takes active believing for the exercise of this kind of authority. The authority that's over every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. Skip down with me to, to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. He's talking about the same things. Paul is still talking about the same subject. He says, just as this power raised Jesus from the dead, he continues with an equal parallel line. He says, and has raised us, meaning the church, up together with him, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, where are those heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. It's saying you've got the same seat as Jesus. Folks, you cannot tell me. Nobody can convince me because I know the Bible. Nobody can convince me that Jesus died and made the sacrifice that he made just so you and I could get to heaven. Please understand that when God created the world, he made all the animals, he made all the living creatures, he made everything that there was, and then he said, let's make man. And the angel said, who? What's man? Never heard of man before. So, folks, please understand, whatever was here on the earth before Adam and Eve wasn't man. Now, I don't know if it was some humanoid-looking thing, some caveman stuff that you see drawings about. I don't know, but it wasn't man. It wasn't in the class of, of God that man is in, meaning it couldn't have been a spirit being like man is. Because when God said, let us make man in our own image and let man have dominion, let them have dominion, the angels are saying, We've never heard of this before. We've never heard of this. Folks, the Bible says that God made the heavens and the earth. In other words, the earth is just as old as the universe. It doesn't say he made the heavens and then billions and billions and billions and billions of years later he made the earth. It says he made the heavens and the earth. The implication is that he made them both at the same time. It's an interesting thing about our universe because we measure distance by time. They're called light years. The closest star outside of our solar system is something like 2 billion light years away. So we know that the earth has got to be that old. In other words, the light that we're seeing from whatever that star is shined 2 billion years ago. Which means the universe is at least, at least... Two billion years old. 
So what was God doing with the earth? Man is 6,000 years old. Adam and Eve were created here on the earth 6,000 years ago. We can track that. That's easy. So what was happening for those billions of years before then? Had to be something going on. Is it possible that that's why the Bible says, and the earth became without form and void? King James says the earth was without form and void. Literally, it means it became without form and void, meaning it wasn't created that way. In fact, Isaiah said by the Spirit of God, God did not create the earth in vain, literally without form and void. Well, if he didn't create it without form and void, but it became without form and void, what happened? Maybe that's where Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, where he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. God spoke to, uh, to, through the prophets about Satan saying, are you the one? Man will look upon you and say, are you the one that made the earth a wilderness? Literally without form and void. When our eyes are open and we can see everything the way that it is and this earth is gone or this system is gone, this world system is gone, after Jesus comes back for us, we'll be able to look on the devil and see him for who he is. And man will say, you have got to be kidding. This is the punk that caused all the trouble? That's what the Bible says. Punk's my word, but it's pretty close to the original Hebrew. If there had been a word for punk in Hebrew, they would have used it. That's what the Bible says, folks. This is the guy that caused all the trouble, that made the earth a wasteland, literally without form and void. So when God says, let, up, let us make man in our own image and let man have dominion over all the works of our hands, the angels say, God, you've got to be kidding. What is man that you are mindful of him? That you have made him a little lower than yourself? King James says angels, but it's literally the word Elohim, the Godhead. You made him a little lower than the Godhead. The Bible says that we'll judge the angels. Folks, you don't judge up. The angels can't be over man because we'll judge the angels. So the angels are recognizing that they're saying, you're making them above us. We stuck with you. A third of them left and followed Lucifer, but we stuck. You're making them higher than us? What is man? Man's the only thing that was created that God came down and looked face to face and breathed into. Everything else, the Bible says God created the universe by flicking his fingers. God made the billions and billions and billions of stars. It says he knows every one of them by name. It says he made them literally by the flick of his fingers. And you know why it says he did it? To make light for the earth. Folks, we don't need stars for light in the sense that we get light from the sun. It's talking decoration. You know what God's dealing with me about? He's dealing with me about two words. Possible and impossible. He uses both words. You know what I realize? I realize that I've defined possible as about that big. And impossible is pretty much everything outside of that. I've been having the Lord ask me, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's what he asked Abraham when Abraham said, oh, it's too big. I can't have kids now. I'm too old. The Lord asked him, is anything too hard for the Lord? Man, you start meditating on that for a while, that'll put you under condemnation. Because you'll find all the things that you thought, well, I never would have admitted it, but I really kind of thought that's too hard for God. That list is getting shorter and shorter for me. Now, I know some people will call this radical faith. I know some people will call this extreme faith. Okay. I don't care. I've lived long enough in mediocre faith. And I know I'm not satisfied with that. That's one thing that I appreciated so much about Terry Mize when he was here. 
Terry reminded me of who I am. There's a there's a um, there was a poster that I saw many years ago. There's a guy that was up to to about right here in water, and there were alligators coming in from every side. And the caption of this poster said this: It says, "When you're up to your armpits in alligators, it's easy to forget that you were sent to drain the swamp." And I think that's what happens to us in in our Christian life. We get so caught up with the day-to-day battles. We get so caught up with the things that we're fighting and the resistance and so forth. We get so caught up in those things we forget. Wait a minute. We were sent to get rid of the swamp, not to fight alligators. I had done that. I realized I had done that. There were things that God spoke to me, and uh, there were things that God said to me about why he was sending me here and what I was supposed to do. I had gotten away from all those things. I'm back on them now. I pray for the sick differently than I did two months ago. I pray with greater authority now. Well, did I grow more? I don't think so. I think now I'm just using what I've always known that I was supposed to have. Okay, I got way off track here. The angels. Remember the angels? They said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? What is man that thou art mindful of him? God created man to have authority and dominion here on the earth, but he lost every bit of it when he disobeyed God and obeyed Satan. That's when the world system changed. Jesus is now saying that through his death, through his death, through his sacrifice, the sacrifice of his blood, he said the world system is now judged. That means for the person that makes Jesus the Lord of their lives, for the person that recognizes and accepts the truth of who we are in Christ, it means we're not bound by the world system. You know why Jesus walked on the water? Because he wasn't bound by the world system. You know why Jesus knew by the Holy Ghost that there was a fish that could pick up a gold coin to pay his taxes? Because he wasn't bound by the world system. Folks, I don't know if you know this, but fish don't eat coins. If they did, people would be fishing with coins. Jesus performed the miracles, multiplying the loaves and fishes. You know how he was able to do that? Because he wasn't bound by the world system. Even Joshua superseded the world system to cause the sun and the moon to stop. Moses just uh, superseded the world system by stretching forth his rod to part the Red Sea. You see it time and time and time again. When someone is operating by the direction of God or according to his word, they're both the same thing. Some things God said that are written. Other things God speaks to your hearts. When you operate according to those things, you supersede world systems. Because the prince of this world has already been cast out. The Bible says Satan is a defeated foe now. If you think the devil is your problem, you're looking in the wrong direction. You're looking at an enemy that's already been defeated. That's why the Bible never says go fight the devil. It says fight the good fight of faith. But it never tells you to fight the devil. It never tells you to fight anybody else. What does it tell us to do? It tells us to exercise our authority in the name of Jesus. You've got greater authority than Moses had when he parted the Red Sea. Than Joshua had when he stopped the moon and the sun. Than Jesus had when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Than Jesus had when he walked on the water. You've got greater authority because now you're operating in the authority that Jesus has as the risen Savior. Not as the Son of Man on the earth. The Bible says that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him a name that is above every name. That was a name he didn't have here on the earth. That means your authority is greater than Jesus had when he was here. I understand that's hard to accept. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. You have to, you, you have to decide, first of all, is it right for us to wrap our mind around that? Because it sounds like we're, we're, we're exalting ourselves. That's not the point. 
Remember when Jesus, uh, in Luke chapter 10, where the disciples came back and said, even the devils are subject to us in your name, and Jesus said, I've given you authority. He, the very next thing he says is, but don't rejoice because the devils are subject to you. Rejoice because your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What does that mean? That means that even though we're supposed to recognize this authority, recognize who we are in Christ, we're not to think it's about us. Look at the way Jesus operated. Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels to get him down from the cross. Jesus could have called judgment upon anybody that said a word against him. Yet the Bible says he was meek. The Bible says that he was operating in a way that was kind, that was loving, that was gentle, that was merciful. He did not walk into the place saying, I've got authority, you better do things my way or else. And authority won't work for people that have that kind of attitude. I think a lot of times that's what happens to us. We start getting a taste of authority and something works and we think, whoa, yeah, I can do this. Wait, 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 wait. Who? Who's going to do this? Oh, oh, yeah, right. oh, yeah. I'm privileged to be able to work with God to do what his word says. That's what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 12. He tells us about victory. He tells us about being set free by the, by the power of, the, of, of Jesus and his sacrifice. But he said, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. He doesn't say don't think highly of yourself. He just says don't think more highly than you ought to. Don't think it's about you. Folks, I want you to understand something. Everything about Jesus in his ministry was about him. But he refused to think of it as him. He always turned it to his father. But if you get right down to it, it was all about him. It was all about what he did. It's all about what he showed us. It was all about the, the, the example that he said. It was all about the work that he did. But he never talked about himself. Other than to say, I'm the fulfillment of what the prophecy says. He always turned it to his father. He said, my father in me, he's the one doing the works. You've got authority that not even Jesus operated here on the earth. It's time to quit letting the devil push us around. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. Father, teach us the right attitude that we should have. And teach us the work that we should do. Father, we don't want this to be about us. We only want to serve you. And so we therefore ask the same thing that Jesus asked of you, Father. That you would glorify your name. That you would glorify your name. And we believe what you said when Jesus asked you. You have glorified it and you will glorify it again. Oh, Father. Open our eyes to who we are. Open our eyes to the authority that you've given us in the name of Jesus. Open our eyes, Lord, to the fact that all things that we ask in prayer believing we shall receive. Open our eyes, Father, to the fact that with you nothing is impossible. Open our eyes, Father, to the truth that there is nothing that's too hard for you. Show us how, Father. To live above this world system. Show us how to live above the, the, the system of sin and death that operates in the world. We know that we've been set free. Your word says so. Make us people that live up to it. In the precious and holy name of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we recognize that this day commemorates your, the beginning of your week of sacrifice. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that according to your word, we're the reasons that you did it. For the joy that was set before you, you endured the suffering and the shame of the cross and became obedient unto death. Lord, we love you so much. We ask, Lord Jesus, that by the work of God on the inside of us, the work of the Spirit within us, that would be, we would be examples not only of your power, but also of your love and your character. You said, Lord Jesus, that if you were lifted up, and you were, 
that you would draw all men unto you. Draw them through us. Let us, Father, be the light of the world. Recognized to be the light of the world. Therefore, Father, we ask, even as the disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4, we ask that you would grant unto your servants boldness that we would speak your word by stretching, forth, by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders would be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Show us your glory, Father. Show us your glory. Show us your healing glory. Show us your miracle glory. Show us your saving glory. Show us yourself so that the world can see you through us. We pray in Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. We love you, Father. We love you so much. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your great plan. We catch ourselves asking as the angels did, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visited him. You've made us a little lower than yourself. You've given us authority and dominion. And you've crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies. Thank you so much, Father. We pray that we would be worthy of that place of honor. That we would be worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus. That we would be worthy of the authority that belongs to us in his name. Lord Jesus went out from this earth demonstrating your love, demonstrating your truth, demonstrating your power and your goodness. I pray, Lord Jesus, that the same would be said of this last day church. That we would display your power and your love and your mercy and your forgiveness and your goodness. Even before Jesus comes to receive us. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for all that you've done. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand together. I invite you to come back to, to be with us this evening at 5 o'clock for our prayer meeting in the fellowship hall. 6 o'clock is healing school, as we always have. God bless you. Thank you so much for caring about the things of God. We appreciate you being part of our family. Have a great day. You're dismissed.